This is R.J. Rushdoony, Easy Chair number 398, November the 7th, 1997. This evening, Douglas Murray, Andrew Sandlin, and I will try to uh, deal with some of the questions that came in. And let me say some of the questions that I'm not going to bring into the discussion are very good ones. But I don't feel adequate and I don't want to uh, waste your time with inadequate answers. This question is from Frederick and Theresa Foote in Caslet, Michigan. And uh, he wants to know what we think of the importance of utilizing corporal punishment in the training of children. I understand that it is very much frowned upon these days and wanted to know whether you held a similar view. Well, he's right. It's very much frowned upon these days. In fact, there is legislation against it. If you uh, spank your child in public, even if it's just a, a little slap on the wrist. If you're reported, you will be arrested. One of the problems with flying today is that uh, if there's a baby aboard or a child that starts screaming, the mother is helpless to deal with it. And I recall on one flight, I was just across from the mother and she looked at me uh, with such a sense of, of uh, misery and shook her head. She didn't dare do anything for fear when she landed she'd be arrested. And that sort of thing happens. Now, I... I'm sure that there are many parents who have uh, overdone corporal punishment. It's clearly wrong. There is no excuse for being brutal towards a child. In a loving, uh, happy family, the child wants the approval of his mother and father. And uh, very often all you have to do is to say the word and they're uh, really hurt. They, they want to please you. And it doesn't take any uh, harsh treatment. They will start blubbering, crying, when uh, they've been rebuked or just slapped on the wrist lightly, not because they're physically hurt, but because they're hurt to realize they've displeased their parents. I think it's easier to punish your children if you truly love them. The child will know that you love them the child will feel very distressed if he or she is not pleasing the father or mother. I know once 
when I was quite young, about three or four, I recall I didn't want to do something my mother told me to do, and she rebuked me. Uh, she wasn't angry or anything. Uh, just let me know she didn't like it. And she walked out because some visitors were coming, was talking out there with them. And I was crushed, absolutely crushed. And children very often are. They know when they're loved and they know when they hurt someone. Now, having said that, there are times when a child needs to be spanked. It has to be done firmly, but without compromise, and promptly. It doesn't do any good to tell a child, as many mothers do, wait till your father comes home. Well, that's hours and hours after what they did, and uh, they barely remember it, and they're getting spanked and reminded of something, and they're resentful. But if they're spanked when they do it, they know why, and uh, it has a meaning for them. So that the punishment in the right uh, time and place is helpful. Now, I very rarely spank the children. In fact, I can't remember... Uh, having done it uh, to any of the children. I know I never did with Mark. He was so obedient and ready to please. And uh, three of the girls were. Uh, Joanna did get spanked a time or two because uh, <laughs> she has... Uh, an independent and a stormy nature. So occasionally I'd have to spank her. But I had uh, a red ping-pong paddle on top of the refrigerator, and I'd have to say to the children, now, uh, don't get out of line or I'm going to get the red paddle. Bob will be using that uh, later on. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they'd immediately behave because they did not want to displease me. And they knew I was upset when I would say that. So the most important thing is to uh, be firm with your children, but above all to be so loving that they don't want to displease you. It hurts them to realize they have done so. Well, my own kids, I have two boys, and uh, my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, was the one that counseled me on corporal punishment. So uh, when they were quite small, probably in the terrible twos, when the, usually the first signs of outright rebellion <laughs> uh, takes place, why well, I, um, I would take a newspaper, just a daily paper, and fold it three times, 
and they had a big soft diaper on. Those were the days of cloth da diapers, pre-pampers. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then there was a there was kind of like a plastic or rubber pants on the outside of that, so there's plenty of padding there. So uh, I'd uh, slap them on the rear, and it would make a big sound. <laughs> and I would scare the daylights out of them, but, you know, <laughs> no force was ever applied to their skin directly. So uh, it would scare them, and they would, uh, you know, immediately... Uh, You'd have to connect the infraction, of course, with the with the punishment. But bottom line is that by the time they were four years old or five years old, I never had to touch either one of them again. I mean, it was just the sound of the voice. Yes. They knew when you were you'd reached the limit, and uh, the line was drawn in the sand, and that was it. And uh, that was that's all it took. I mean, up to the time they left home. Mm -hmm. So it, it all depends, you know. Nowadays, uh, people use this timeout thing and send the kid to his room. Well, I was listening to a, a talk uh, a show thing here recently. Uh, a couple of guys were discussing nowadays to send your kid to his room is like sending him to Disneyland. He got color television <laughs> and uh, telephone, his own telephone with a private line and uh, video games and so right. forth. Who wouldn't want to go to his room? Right. So it's uh, a lot of that is just uh, ridiculous. Uh, it's diversionary, but it's not punish punishment. It's a temporary diversion. But uh, I don't think kids really get any uh, real sense of, of uh, discipline out of it. Well, one of the things I found that uh, was a very, very important uh, aspect of discipline with the children was that uh, Mark was the youngest. She, he had four older sisters. And uh, it marked him for life in that he was always standing outside the bathroom door. <laughs> He's a very kindly, gentle person, but Darlene tells me there's one thing he draws a line on. <laughs> well, when uh, there are more than two or three children, they tend to discipline each other. Mm -hmm. They don't want any of them to get out of line. So that a great deal of the discipline with the family, within the family, was done by the girls one to another, and... Uh, it was all important. Mm -hmm. Well, it's a it's a support system. Yes, and uh, people, of course, the size of families has diminished nowadays. So that uh, sort of sister sister uh, brother sister uh, support system is not there as much. But uh, it's a it's a valuable asset. Yes. I was just going to mention that um, certainly there can be excessive discipline, and oh, that really is mm -hmm. tragic. On the other hand, the book of Proverbs is clear that if we don't discipline our children, we yes. don't love them. Um, also, it tends to be a liberal or a false view of man that opposes the idea of discipline, that denies original sin, for example, that the notion that people are basically born good and are corrupted by human institutions which, of course, is, is perversion. So I, 
There's no question that we have to discipline our children, and the parent that truly loves his children will discipline his children. Well, I think something that's now forgotten, maybe it happens and I don't see it. Uh, I can recall years ago when I was a child and also when I was a young father, when the father came home from work, the children would run to him, Daddy, Daddy. Yes. And they'd shout to the mother, Daddy's home. They were happy to see him. Yes. Now they're too busy with whatever they're doing and uh, there, there's none of that sense of joy in seeing a father come home. And uh, I, I simply don't understand that. It means there's something wrong in the whole world of our day within the families. Yes. They're not close. Well, they're not a praying, godly unity. They each go their way or they hole up in their room. Uh, I wonder, has any father of late been greeted joyfully by a child? Probably not, unless he's handing the kid the keys of the car. But uh, the our culture has systematically, over the past 30 years, taught children that their parents are irrelevant yes. to their lives. So kids have chosen other uh, diversions, other role models, whether they're rock stars or pop music stars, uh, whether they join a gang. In other words, they have chosen other social yeah. connections rather than uh, being connected to their parents. Their parents are sort of, uh, uh, they see them as jailers or caretakers or for just solely as providers. And basically, this is all the state wants nowadays. Yes. The state wants to have absolute control over all facets of raising the child. Uh, they want to control whether or not uh, or how you discipline them. Um, they uh, will hold you accountable if you do, and they will hold you accountable if you don't. That's right. And uh, a lot of parents are terribly frustrated because they don't know what to do. I think a family of some kind is an inescapable concept if they uh, get away from their own what's called today nuclear, we would call biblical family. They'll find a family in gangs or somewhere else uh, because God has, has made man to be family oriented. But if he denies the biblical family, he'll have to find a family among friends or somewhere else and opposes his genuine family. Well, the, the failure of our society is measured in how many people do we have in prison. You know, we are yes. building more and more and more prisons right. and filling them up and everybody is satisfying themselves that this problem is being solved with uh, determinant uh, sentences and so forth. But the real problem is that the family has been destroyed, that the parental, uh, parental control has been destroyed by the state. The statistics are clear. Most of the people in prison in this country are men between the ages of 16 and 24. And the one overwhelming factor, you know what it is, they don't have a father. If a fellow doesn't have a father, he's going to likely end up yes. in jail. My children began their schooling, um, well, the older ones, 
in the 50s when there were no Christian schools around anywhere where I lived. And uh, later on in the 60s became uh, Christian school uh, children. But I recall when the older girls were just starting school, I went to the uh, PTA. I was already beginning to think along lines of the necessity for Christian schooling and began writing messianic character almost uh, a year or two after that. But I can recall my total sense of irritation and disgust. Uh, I believe it was the second and last PTA, Parent Teacher Association meeting I attended, when uh, one of the uh, teachers made the statement that uh, the parents shouldn't... uh, try to teach the children or help them with their schooling, it would interfere with the professional approach (laughs) their teachers were taking. And uh, that really angered me. And I thought, uh, it's better for me not to come back. (laughs) Yes, well, we've... Yes, well, we've, we've lived to see the the corruption of that entire system. I'm convinced, Rush, that in 50 years there really won't be any public school system like we have known it. Uh, it it's going I, to go down. I feel quite sure that will be the case. Well, the, the money is running out, and one of the signs is that uh, just within the past few days, the uh, educators are trying to get the state legislature here in California to pass a bill requiring only a simple majority of the voters in order to get a school bond issue passed. Well, as our population is maturing, we have more and more people who are, uh, you know, the baby boomer generation now in their their 50s, they realize, or they have begun to realize at least, what they have been cheated out of by the public school system. So they're not going to vote for any more of it. Well, bond issues uh, have a problem nowadays in passing, and it's because of the growing disgust with the public schools. Well, they're trying to, you know, they're trying to, uh, public school officials, administrators, and uh, teachers' organizations are trying to say that the simple majority rather than the two-thirds majority is necessary because we have an older population that doesn't care because they don't have a dog in the fight. They don't have any kids in school anymore, so they don't want to pay any more taxes to pay off the bonds. Well, the as I said before, that's not really the reason. The reason is that they are now more mature. They realize what the public school system has cheated them out of, and they're not going to pay for a faulty system, to perpetuate a faulty system that is causing our society just abject misery. I recall not too many years ago, uh, realtors would uh, 
say about a piece of property. It has this advantage. It's very close to the public school. Now that's, that's a kiss of death. Like it Absolutely. Yes. yes. Show me the that's other end of town. It's far from the yeah. public school. Yes, and it's because of the extensive vandalism and uh, mm -hmm. misconduct, disrespect uh, that is routine. Well, I think one of the things that we uh, need to recognize here is that the Christian schools are relatively free of discipline problems. There are few and far between. And they're nothing serious. They're very minor. That's right. And uh, mm -hmm. there has to be a re reason, and I think the reason is an obvious one. It is a Christian school. Well, but if Mark were here, I know he said this before, so I'm not putting words in his mouth, but he said before that if you're uh, going to put a kid in Christian school, start the kid right from the get-go, from yes. from kindergarten on, because he said that oftentimes people will uh, put a child into public school for kindergarten and maybe the first grade and then realize they got a problem and then try to put them in a Christian school hoping that that will correct it, and it's almost out of control by that time. Yes. Yes. So uh, people should be forewarned that if they, they're going to have to take the right road right from the beginning. There are areas in the cities where discipline in kindergarten is a problem. And once on a speaking tour, I had a teacher tell me that uh, uh, kindergarten children would swear at her. Oh, yeah. Well, we hear it on they, television. I mean, it's they get it all day long on, on television. That's right. And, Well, we have uh, a real problem here in that our world is seeing a very high crime rate now among teenagers. And uh, historically, instead of teenagers uh, being the... Uh, time of rebellion, it was the time when children were most prone to imitating their elders, trying to be mature and grown up, because they were anticipating maturity themselves and were most ready to imitate. They wanted to learn the skills of maturity, and uh, girls didn't have to be told to help out in the kitchen. They wanted to learn. And I can recall them taking over and preparing uh, this or that dish or maybe a whole meal, two girls at a time, because they wanted to learn. And uh, the boys, uh, trying to learn the skills of maturity by adult type work or going to help their father. One of the uh, men in our group uh, recently had his son who has just started college 
come to work at uh, the car dealership. And uh, it wasn't that the son was uh, anything but a fine uh, Christian boy, but it revolutionized his outlook. He was obedient. Now he feels a deep respect for his father because he has seen his father work, seen the ability, seen the skill, and has developed an appreciation for it. Well, I think we've isolated uh, children too much from parents in our time because we put them in groups and activities as though they need to be with their own kind. And uh, I don't believe in that. I know that when I was growing up, I, when very young, somehow got a Boy Scout handbook. And I read it from one cover to another, and I could hardly wait to be a scout. But in those days, they didn't have Cub Scouts where I was. Maybe they didn't have them at all. I don't know. But before long, uh, the one thing I did not want to be was a Boy Scout. Because I could see that uh, there were elements of uh, group psychology that were taking over as against a family orientation. And uh, I recall in high school, it was on a, a trip uh, about oh, 130 miles away uh, to play another high school football. Uh, some of us uh, were talking on the way back and uh, one of them said uh, to me that uh, I was smart not to join the scouts. He said, you know, I know everyone in the high school who's been a scout. It was a small town. They knew everybody. And he said, all of us learned how to smoke as scouts. All of us began to feel independent of our parents because we were now a group and the leader was the one that we were looking to. It's running with the pack. It's pack mentality. Yes. So... Uh, We've overrated the importance of uh, children being together or children right. engaging in this and that yes. when the basic thing that is the mm -hmm. most effective in creating mm -hmm. a disciplined child is the family. That's right. Well, it's, you know, the uh, public schools feel that they have to supply everything. Yes. The, the thing that they talk about is socialization. Yes. Uh, and it's true that there are many dysfunctional families where socialization, either because of drugs or alcohol, are impossible. Mm -hmm. But there is no, they cannot substitute for the family. Exactly. I spoke <clears throat> at uh, three Christian homeschool conventions this year. And at one of them, I spoke on this issue of socialization I said, the best means of socialization ever devised is provided by the family. That's right. There is nothing to equal it. Mm -hmm. 
And I don't mean this modern idea of fathers playing ball with their sons. and Not that I object to it, but the idea that the father has to be a, a companion to his son is not what is needed. He needs to be a father to his son. That's right. Yeah, you, you have to look up. You can't look sideways. Yes. This buddy system stuff doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Well, do you have anything more to say on this before we go to another question? Uh, I'm uh, glad that this question was raised. I hope we've uh, been of help to you. And uh, we do appreciate your questions. We not only enjoy answering the questions we feel we're competent to answer, but uh, sometimes it helps us bring into focus our own thinking. Well, I got a very welcome uh, letter from a very fine old friend, not old in years, from uh, Joe Logaducci, and I'll read just a portion of it. Greetings. It has been a while since we have communicated, so let me say first off that Cindy sends her greetings along with this note and love as well. Thank you for your faithfulness and continued labors in the truth. I always look forward to each mailing of the Calcedon Report and the monthly tapes. I have a question for the easy chair. My question has to do with hermeneutics. It appears that there is a growing reliance on the historic redemptive hermeneutic as opposed to the grammatical historical interpretation and preaching uh, coming out of Westminster. Uh, I'm hearing more about biblical theology versus systematic theology. I'm also hearing more about the Genesis 1 and 2 framework hypothesis as against a literal 624-hour-day creation uh, or day-age theme. At first, I was somewhat indifferent to all this, but lately I'm starting to have some concerns. The hermeneutic seems to be growing in popularity, and quite frankly, I struggle with the implications and meaning. I'm hearing less of Antill within Reformed circles and more Gerhardus Voss. I've only read Voss once and found it difficult to follow. As a side note, there seems to be a somewhat belligerent attitude within this group toward those who differ especially toward those who hold the theonomic position. I'm finding this a little disconcerting, but I'm not really sure why, or if I should be concerned. I'd be interested in your thoughts, or if you could guide me toward appropriate reading on the topics. Well, thanks, Joe. I think it's a very, very important question because... There's a real problem developing yes. uh, within the church, within uh, supposedly good reform circles, precisely uh, in this direction. You've put your finger on it. 
Let me start by telling of a little episode that happened years and years ago when I was young. I was in the company of an older pastor. He'd asked me to stop by. I vaguely gathered that he thought I was a bit naive in my views of the Bible. And when I made it clear that I did believe that Genesis 1 through 11 was historic, that it was true history, and that God created all things in the space of six days, uh, he said, uh, I can still remember it, and what is the hermeneutical premise in terms of which you come to this conclusion? And he went on to use other words that uh, for a young fellow were baffling. I've never liked the word hermeneutic since then. It's a good word. But I've got an automatic mindset at it because my gut reaction was this so-and-so is going to try to uh, confuse me and make me feel like a fool by using words I've never encountered. And uh, what came out in the discussion, which became a very long one, was that uh, he did not believe in the historicity of Genesis 1 through 11, which was the subject on which we began. I tried to be respectful. I was young. He was well regarded. So I asked him, do you believe in the resurrection? Because I was beginning to sense that he was what I've since come to know as a Bartian. And uh, his response was, and what do you mean by the resurrection? Answered a question with a question. And I said, it means simply that Jesus Christ, who was crucified and died, was buried, rose again from the dead in the self-same body in which he was buried. Then I stated it rather emphatically because I was trying to be as courteous as possible, but as... Uh, emphatic in affirming the faith as possible. Well, his response was, there are, of course, you know, uh, you must realize that you cannot be naive. Uh, there can be a belief in the literal bodily resurrection, in uh, spiritual resurrection, or a resurrection in the hope of the disciples, and uh, of the teachings they had received and he went on and he gave uh, half a dozen uh, 
theories of the resurrection. And he also made clear that I had no awareness of hermeneutics, hmm. or I would not uh, limit meaning so naively. And all I could say, and I'm glad I said it, was the Bible states things clearly. The Bible didn't ever hear the authors of the Bible, the word hermeneutics. Don't give me that. It has a plain meaning apparent to all. Well, Joe, I was very young, didn't know a great many things that I do now about theology and Bible, although I knew the Bible backwards and forwards. But I haven't changed my mind since then. And you can understand why the word hermeneutics, after that experience, uh, left a bad taste in my mouth because I saw it as a device to take someone who is young or older people who don't have a theological training and try to confuse them and make them feel I don't have the right to ask a question. I don't know enough to ask a question. I should have kept my mouth shut. Maybe there's more to this than I realize. But the Bible is only the province of scholars. In yes, yeah. exactly. It is a denial of the whole premise of the Reformation. And that's one of my objections to words like hermeneutics. I know it's a good word. I know it stands for something sound. But the whole premise of the Reformation was that the Bible could be read by the ordinary man and understood. The King James Version is nine-tenths Tyndale's work. Tyndale translated all of it except for a, a few of the minor prophets. He was executed before he could do it all. And he made clear his goal that any plowboy in England could read and understand the Bible. That's the whole premise of the Reformation. So, Joe, my feeling is that this, these people, as well as that minister, a uh, highly respected man, whom I had the misfortune of being uh, taken to one side to be instructed uh, by, I, well, I'm afraid I'll get into some intemperate language to uh, express what I think of such people. But they are anti-Reformation, anti-Reformed. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. Any dissent? Uh, Ralph, <laughs> do you mind if I use some intemperate language? <laughs> By all means. <laughs> uh, it's interesting. This is a very excellent question, Joe, and <clears throat> insightful one. I want to state flatly, I'm not a supporter at all of the so-called historical redemptive method of interpretation. 
which really undermines the authority of the Bible in the name of Christ. Uh, not one of these people, as far as I know, affirms the abiding authority of Old Testament law, for example. Yes. When they talk about the judicial law or the case laws, they'll say, well, it was only pointing to Christ, and they'll try to have some deeper spiritual mm -hmm. meaning. But that's not to honor Christ, to yeah. deny the authority of his law. That's to dishonor Christ. Um, a lot of this has occurred, especially of late, in the Dutch school, and much good has come from the Dutch school, but this has been a real problem. And as much as I appreciate Voss's contributions in many ways, um, I'm also not a fan of the so-called biblical theology method. I think all of the Bible is authoritative. Of course, Rush, they'll make fun of us and say, you're not... Uh, sensitive to the nuances of progressive mm -hmm. revelation and all of that sort of thing, which really is nonsense. We certainly believe in the New Covenant, but we nonetheless believe that the entire Bible is a New Covenant book. Well, if I may interject, uh, mm -hmm. Andrew, yes. uh, I would say biblical theology is simply setting forth, or should be, what the Word of God uh teaches us. But that's not what they mean by that. No, term. no. Uh, and a truly biblical theology will believe that the whole of the Bible from beginning to end is the word of God. Absolutely. And that God is true to his own nature. Yes. He isn't uh, changeable. I am the Lord, yes. I change not. Therefore, we have systematic theology because of the whole of Scripture, there can be only one theme, one yes. purpose, one mind behind it. And if we deny that, then biblical theology is not biblical. There's another point, Rush, I want to make. This statement will sound very simple, but I think it really has profound consequences. And that is this. The Bible is not a pretty book. No. See, they want a Bible uh, that is amenable to so-called literary criticism and the literary shape of the Bible. Um, and the Bible is not really a textbook in systematic theology either. The Bible is the infallible and living Word of God, but it's not a pretty book. Mm -hmm. And it's not designed to be treated as a very pretty book. Uh, you have used yeah. the word rush many times. The Bible is designed to be a command word. Yes. It, Thank you for stressing that, Andrew, because years ago uh, on a particular occasion, and I have made the same statement since, but I was offended when someone talked uh, with a lot of pious gush about how inspiring the Bible is. And... I said it is inspired, but inspiring? It speaks to us. It tells us of our sins. It tells us about our waywardness. All we like sheep have gone astray. It summons us. It's a command word. Whether we like it or not, we are to read it. Now, I enjoy reading the Bible. It's exciting reading to me. But it can also be a rebuking word. And if we're not rebuked, then we're Pharisees. That's right. Rush, I think a lot of these 
approaches are designed to evade the clear the clear teaching yes. of scripture because the problem with man with God is not an intellectual problem it's a moral problem and a lot of people yes. miss that miss that point as you well know I want to mention this however uh, the seminary mentioned in there, there are some students at one of those seminaries that have asked me to come down and address the issue of theonomy. It's interesting you would ask that question because I'm going to spend part of the time blasting the so-called redemptive historical method that tends to do away with biblical law. Um, this is an absolutely essential point, and it really is prominent, unfortunately, this error, as he indicated, in Reformed circles. And that's one reason there's so much hostility to Chalcedon. Uh, they, of course, claim to be Calvinist soteriologically, but when it comes to applying all of the Word of God to all of life, uh, they don't want to take that step, and I think our existence and our beliefs are a rebuke to yes. them and their actions. Well, there's another element. Uh, man has an unequal genius for spawning what I call intellectual predators who take a delight in raining on people's parade. And I was stunned as a teenager reading the Farmer's Almanac to learn that in the United States there were 353 recognized denominations. And I said, how can this be? There's only one, you know, Bible as far as I was concerned. How can there be 353 interpretations of the same book? Either we're not very smart, or we've got all these people who want to perpetuate their personalities. They want to put their stamp on something that they had nothing to do with writing. Yeah. Uh, and all of these people who come up, whether it's hermeneutics or whatever you want to call it, they want to drive a wedge into what uh, people believe and they want to use that wedge to upset your sense of uh, what you believe so that they get a chance to try to convince you or reprogram you into what they believe rather than what God wants you to do. And they make a religion out of it. And they make a lot of money out of it, That's a lot right. of them. And it's a hustle. And I you know, would tell anybody, don't let anybody upset your belief in the Bible That's right. as the living word of God. Well, uh, turning back to what uh, Joe had to say about the framework hypothesis as against the literal 624-hour day creation, uh, my troubles with the church began there before I'd ever written uh, Institutes of Biblical Law and gained the wrath of churchmen for that, I had uh, expressed strong uh, feelings about the growing uh, tendency to dismiss the historicity of Genesis 1 through 11. Modernism began precisely at that point. That's right. Mm -hmm. In the last century, it was there that modernism began as it said, well, Darwin is right and the Bible is here symbolic. 
It gives us a framework. It gives us this, that, and the other uh, thing whereby the actual six-day creationism was explained away. Now, some very fine men did it at the time. They were reeling under the shock of Darwin because Darwin burst on the world with uh, a great deal of uh, uh, preparation, one might say, historical preparation behind him because the current of thinking had moved in that direction. Hegelian thinking was actually evolutionary. In his philosophy, he saw all things as evolving. Now, supposedly, Darwin had provided the biological basis. So, everyone was prepared to believe it. And here was the supposed scientific proof. Here was a dull, poorly written book, not very logical, long-winded, and the whole edition sold out in two days. Not many people read it, but they wanted to believe it, and it was like having another, uh, the real Bible to put on the shelf. And I believe one of the Huxleys admitted that at the time. He said, we all wanted to believe this, and we just found it. We were just all waiting to read this, this thing. Yes. Well, what is happening now in uh, fundamentalist circles and reform circles is that we're going back to repeat that same error. And the uh, framework hypothesis is a, an intellectual bit of hypocrisy to disguise the fact that this is what they're doing. And it pretends to be the true interpretation. I read recently uh, statements by several men who claim to be outstanding reformed leaders and are so regarded. And the gist of it was that, oh, the church has a problem. We have so many people who profess to be good reformed men, orthodox in their thinking, who naively believe in the historicity of Genesis 1 through 11. Now that to me is intellectual hypocrisy of the worst kind. It's non-Christian. It is non-Christian. Well, so, Joe, your instincts are all sound and biblical. And don't let anybody ever fool you with a guff or with those languages. They're not talking anything that's sound. And they're using big words because they'll figure you're an outsider uh, to uh, the world of the seminary and the ministry and you're not uh, capable of dealing with it. So these words are frauds as they use them. And this is not a secondary issue, especially this historicity of Genesis 1 through 11. This is yes. a bedrock issue in the faith where we need yes. to draw a line in the sand and stand for it. I want to mention I re recently received email from a noted Reconstructionist minister who's joined what some would people would consider to be perhaps the leading uh, Presbyterian, conservative Presbyterian denomination in the country. And yet he was grilled 
very strongly because yeah. it has outspoken stand in favor of the historicity of Genesis 1 through 11. Yes. This same denomination will be very weak when it comes to biblical law, mind you. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to anybody else who takes a strong stand on the historicity of Genesis 1 through 11, he just barely got by. That shows where even the leading so-called conservative denominations, reformed denominations, are headed. Yes. And unless the brakes are applied soon, there is very, very great trouble ahead for all such churches. That's right. Well, Joe, thanks for your question. It uh, stirred me up. Uh, reminded me of things I had uh, preferred to forget, but I'm glad I remembered them, and I hope my recollections are of help to all of you who are listening. We are in a battle. The enemy is within our own ranks now. And uh, he hopes to destroy the faith, but it will not be destroyed. Uh, long ago, one English layman, a uh, very fine Christian, uh, made the statement that uh, it wasn't anything like the scholars or the authorities that were the problem, that if we simply allowed the Word of God, turned it loose on the people, like a roaring lion, he would devour all the enemies. I've never forgotten that. I read that when I was quite young. And I believe it's true. Well, our time is up. I want to thank all of you who send in questions, whether we use them or not. Uh, some of the questions that I've gotten have made me do a little digging, made me appreciate the things I don't know and I need to learn. While those we've dealt with, I've enjoyed dealing with them. Thank you all and God bless you.